All right. Have you ever been surprised at how people make decisions? Not necessarily the decisions they make, but their approach to decision making. Do you know what I mean? Let me give you a, a brief example that's really silly. But a few years ago, we were on vacation with some friends of ours, and we're in this new place that we've never been to before. And of course, you're asking the question like, where do you go out to eat on vacation? Where do you go? And so I, my theory is if I am somewhere new, I need to eat somewhere different. I'm not going to go to McDonald's on vacation. That's just a waste of time and money and nutrition. I'm going to go somewhere new and cool. And I'm going to try something out. My friends I was with, their theory for where you go to eat on vacation was, hey, we're on vacation. We want to make sure that we're comfortable. We want to make sure that it's familiar. We want to make sure that we order something we like. So they want to go somewhere they've been before. And I'm like, you do not get on a flight. You do not land somewhere brand new and go to Applebee's. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Now, it's not the decision they made. It's how they got to that decision that was mystifying to me. Everybody, everybody in the room has a mental flow chart that they navigate when they come to any interaction where they're having to figure out, like, what do I do in this situation? And maybe isn't eating out, but it's all kinds of things. So you're making a lot of decisions every single day. Psychology Today estimates that the average adult human makes 35,000 decisions every single day. 35,000. Now, that seemed high to me. I don't know. And so I'm assuming they're including those unconscious decisions that we make to scratch our face or blink or something. I don't know. It seems like that's a little high. But we do make a lot of decisions. This morning, you made a decision about whether or not you would hit the snooze button, right? You made a decision about what you were going to wear to church. You made a decision about whether or not you were going to read your Bible this morning. There was some conscious event happening in your brain where you were deciding, how am I going to navigate this particular situation? A, a single text message. Have you ever had to compose a text message and it took you forever because you're trying to figure out what you're going to say. You're trying to figure out exactly how many exclamation points do I include in this text message? Which emoji will convey exactly what I'm feeling? There's a lot of decisions to make in a single text message response to somebody. Children, according to the same article, children make about 3,000 decisions a day. So adults make 35,000. Children make 3,000. Which, as an adult, have you ever thought, man, I just wish I could be a kid again and people could tell me what to do and when you're a kid I'm like I can't wait to be an adult and people can't tell me what to do like it's just so funny we get to this place where we wanted to be and all of a sudden we don't want to be there anymore but what about those complex costly emotionally fraught ethical and moral decisions that we have to navigate how about having to tell a friend a really painful, difficult truth that could hurt the relationship? How about some of you, you are in workplaces where the HR department wants you to sign something or say something or affirm something that you're having a, you're having a hard time. You're wondering, how does my faith play out in this situation? And if I speak up or if I say something, could it endanger my job? How do I navigate that sort of ethical situation? Uh, how do I navigate a situation where I know I need to forgive someone, but I want to make clear to them that I don't condone what they did. I want to forgive them, but I want to make sure that they don't feel like what they did was no big deal. How do we navigate that? Uh, how do we navigate needing to confess a sin that could damage our relationships and our reputation? How do we navigate that? There's a burden we're bearing. Bible says confess, but how do we navigate that? How do we do that? Or parenting. Oh my goodness, parenting. How do we decide what battles we're going to we're going to fight. How do we decide what to let go? How do we decide what things are just going to make our children turn out to be serial killers and what things are just no big deal and we can just relax about it? I mean, there's just thousands 
thousands of things that are a big deal that we have to navigate constantly. And I think it's important to say this, morality, right and wrong, isn't necessarily complex, but navigating a moral life is complex. Like the right and wrong, when you read scripture, it's, you know, it's pretty evident, like that's right, that's wrong, but navigating moral life is complex. And I think anybody that says, oh no, it's not any big deal, is probably trying to start a cult. And they're probably saying, I have all the answers, because it is hard. You are dealing with situations in your life right now that are difficult, and they're unclear about what is actually the right thing to do, what will actually turn out for the best for you and the situation of the people around you. We're in our spiritual formation journey. We're about halfway through this process so far. And we finally arrived at the letter to the Corinthians. This is called the first Corinthians. This letter is full of stuff that you should not do. <laughs> it's a fascinating letter. Paul had been in Athens. He probably walked to Corinth and he was there, I don't know, a year and a half or so. The details in the book of Acts are a little, a little unclear. It was about 18 months. And he started this Jesus community. He formed this community and he was teaching them. I mean, they were taught by the apostle Paul and he formed this community. And for whatever reason, he felt like, all right, it's time for me to move on now. And he started going to the next place and he started getting letters, hearing reports. People started talking to him and they're like, this church is bad news. So as you read this book, here are four things that will really help you navigate this text. Four things that I think are vital to understand because it is easy to get off track with the book of 1 Corinthians. Four things. Number one, this church is an absolute wreck. It is a mess. It is a disaster. It is horrible. It is terrible. It is no good. It's very bad. So when people are like, we need to return to the first century church. Well, it's not this one because this one's bad news. It must be some other one. Most of them were bad news in some way or another, but this is not a model church. In other words, when you're reading 1 Corinthians, you're not reading it to see, hmm, what should I do? You're essentially reading it to see what should I not do or what did Paul do in response to what these people did. So it's not a model church, and it's important that we understand that as we're reading through what's happening. I was trying to figure out what's a good scenario in life to help us understand what a mess this was. And the only thing I could come up with, ethically speaking, it's like a pregnant woman going into labor during a tornado while the building is on fire. And you're like, where do you start? So it's like a soap opera. It's a reality show. It's real, uh, real Christians of Corinth, season one. Number two, number two, you're hearing one side of a wild conversation. We are not hearing what the people have said to Paul or what Paul's heard specifically, but we're hearing Paul's response. So we're piecing together what's happened, but we're hearing one side of the conversation and it is a, it's a crazy conversation. A couple verses to draw your attention to if you want to jot these down or look them up. In uh, chapter one, verse 11, there's this lady named Chloe, businesswoman, very influential. She sent some of her people to go uh, do some business in Corinth while they were there. These Christian people interacted with the Christians in Corinth. They came back to Chloe and they said, Chloe, it's a mess. Chloe went to Paul and said, Paul, it's a mess. But we don't know specifically what they said. They just give Paul a big overview of what's happening. In chapter 5, verse 9, Paul says, I wrote you in my letter. This is really fascinating if you like the behind-the-scenes stuff. 1 Corinthians, this is going to be confusing. Ready? 1 Corinthians is actually at least 2 Corinthians. 
which means 2 Corinthians is actually 3 Corinthians. There's a letter Paul wrote to them that we don't have, which is wild to think about. You're like, man, I wish they would have saved everything. I would really enjoy reading that first letter that Paul wrote. So there was some other letter he wrote, and they wrote him back in chapter 7, verse 1. They wrote him back, and they said, hey, here's some things we're thinking. Here's some questions we have, but we don't have that letter. So we have his responses. We have some summations he's made, but we don't have uh, what he wrote. And this is really tricky, and I didn't include it here for some reason, but in chapter 6, verse 12, there's a really clear example of Paul quoting a bad idea from the Corinthians in order to refute it. But if you're not paying attention, it sounds like Paul's saying that thing and then immediately contradicting himself. And it's very confusing. So 1 Corinthians takes a little bit of work to read, and that's a good thing. You should enjoy the process and the challenge that it provides because what you find out in this letter through all that work is going to be incredibly helpful to your life here today. Uh, the third thing you need to know, Paul, the apostle, is not afraid of a little sarcasm. Isn't that a weird thing to think about? Uh, the best example of this, because I thought there might be some people who are like, I don't think so. Paul was above all that. Best example of this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. Um, and Paul's basically saying, oh, you Corinthians, you guys think you're so cool. You're so smart. You're so wise. It's just like you're ruling by yourselves now. Man, that's wonderful. And then he ends it. You have begun to reign and that without us. And then he immediately responds to that saying, how I wish that you really had begun to reign. I really wish that you had it all together. I wish you really were kings and authorities and rulers. I wish that were true, that we might also reign with you. But he's being sarcastic. And if you don't realize that, then sometimes some of the stuff he says is like, whoa, wait a second. Paul, I don't, what's going on here? And then finally, the fourth thing you need to know, and this is important, ancient answers raise modern eyebrows. Ancient answers raise modern eyebrows. One of the things that was happening in the church, and I wish we could get more into this in detail, is that their actual church services were an absolute disaster. <laughs> they, were, they were horrible, to the point that Paul said, listen, when you guys come together, everybody walks away a worse Christian for the experience in chapter 11. I have, he says, I have no praise for you. You do more harm than good. It's horrible. It's a mess. It's a disaster. It's chaos. It's, it's awful. And so in all that, he's saying, chapter 14, verse 33, he says, listen, God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. And then he says, verse 34, women should remain silent in the churches. And then everybody's like, whoa, hold the phone, buddy. Whoa, what's this part about? You were just talking about churches need to be all orderly, and all of a sudden there's this thing about women. And he says, they're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law, the Torah, says. What? Now we've got a bunch more questions, Paul. But remember, he's not trying to write to modern sensibilities. He's responding to the disaster that's happening in that church. He's not trying to think, hmm, what will a congregation in 2022 in the suburb of the Twin Cities think if I write that? He's writing to a situation that would have been helpful to them, and he says things that we have a hard time understanding what he's getting at. Let me give you a super quick example. This is maybe helpful, maybe not. But if after church we're milling around and, I don't know, Liam's doing something. And, and I say, Liam, get over here right now, like that, with that angry sound in my voice. You guys would have one of two responses. You would say, oof, Patrick's got more of a temper than I thought. I didn't realize that was part of Patrick's character and his personality DNA. 
Or if you were really charitable, you might say something like, hmm, he's probably told Liam to get over here a million times, and this is a million and one, and he's finally had it, and he's trying to show how serious he is. If you were being nice to me. But if we were in my front yard, and Liam was facing down the street, and there was a truck coming, and I said, Liam, get over here right now, you would think, oh, he's being loving because he's trying to save his son from being, you know, sent to the hospital. In fact, if I were to, in that situation, rush out and tackle Liam and throw him out of the way of the truck, you would be like, that is an incredibly loving and heroic dad. In any other context, me tackling Liam and throwing him would look disastrous. But in that context, you'd be like, oh, he's being loving. So understand when Paul, who is someone filled with the Spirit of God, what he rights is something that is loving that they needed. The fact that we struggle, that we have a hard time with some of this, doesn't mean that what he's trying to do isn't a good, godly thing that you would agree with if you could fully understand everything that was happening. So, all right, keep all that in mind, and here's what's in store for this, for this sermon today. Number one, we're going to take a real quick look at their problems, because their problems are mostly the whole book. We're going to show why they kept making such bad decisions. We're going to discover Paul's methodology for correcting them, which shows how you should make better ethical, moral decisions. And then we're going to wrap up with kind of three overall takeaways from the book. All right? We all have problems. We all have problems. Uh, Imagine I had an envelope. And I pulled this envelope out and I said, hey, this has been a really thorough assessment by some professional people of you, your life and your character. And it's all here. It's all your shortcomings, all your flaws, all your problems, all your weaknesses, all your blind spots right here in this letter. How many of you would be like, I want to read that. I'm very curious. All right. Okay, like seven people. All right, all right, a few more, a few more. How many of you are like, no way, burn that thing. I don't want any record of it. I don't care. I'll just like to go on blissfully about my life. All right? Imagine I said, I will give this to you on one condition. The condition is this. We can only read it in public with the entire church gathered together to hear. (laughs) That, in a nutshell, is the book of 1 Corinthians. Because Paul's going to say some stuff about some people. He doesn't name names, which is kind of funny, but everybody knew who he was talking about. So if you're going through the book and you got your pen, you got your cup of coffee, uh, you got your Bible, and you're reading through the letter, every time you see Paul say something like, now about, or it has been said, or Chloe's people reported to me, if you mark every single one of those, you will have about 10 times in the letter that Paul is dealing with a specific problem throughout the text. 10 different times. And I've I've, uh, summarized them here for you. They're on on the screen. And really, we could get into this, and we're not going to dig into this too much. I'm just going to point out a few things. But really, number one is the problem that's that's all through the church, all through the letter. It all stems back to this one thing that has manifested itself in many different ways. And it was their pride, their their spiritual uh, elitism that had just wreaked havoc. And we'll talk about that in a second. 
But the first thing Paul says at the beginning of the letter is like, hey, I've heard this is happening. I've heard you guys really like to side with one particular teacher, one particular preacher. And I was thinking about like, do these problems actually translate to, to, to modern times? Do we, do we really have that? Do we have anybody in here who's like, man, you know, Patrick's okay, but I really like Steve. Or, or Steve's fine, but I really like Caleb. Do we do that kind of thing? I was reading this week about a large, well-known, well-attended congregation who has a celebrity pastor. I don't know, that's a weird way to say that, but someone who's well-known, you would have heard of, that writes books, has podcasts, you might have heard their sermons, and the church intentionally doesn't announce whether or not he is preaching on a given Sunday. Do you know why they don't announce? Why would they not announce that their celebrity pastor is preaching on a given Sunday? Do you have any idea? Because if he's not there, attendant, you know how it they said it drops by 50% if their guy isn't there. It's pretty wild. Notice how many of these um, have to do with sex. I know it's a little uncomfortable to talk about in church. Like, ugh. A lot of them have to do with sex, a lot of problems in the church around this idea and particularly their way of thinking about sex. Number three, suing fellow Christians was a problem. He was like, hey, you have lawsuits against one another. Can you imagine that? Karine and I were in a uh, church volleyball league. Um, this is not in Woodbury. This is before we moved here. And uh, we, we won the championship, by the way. Just thought I would. Okay. Um, <laughs> Yes, yeah, you know, got to have something on my resume. The year after we left and moved up here, we were talking to some folks down in Iowa saying, oh, how's the volleyball team holding up, you know, now that we're not there? Uh, and they told us that actually the whole thing had been canceled because two teams had gotten so into it over some argument that they had to call the cops, and they ended up just shutting the whole thing down. Church volleyball! Church volleyball! This isn't prison volleyball. This is church league co-ed volleyball and they had to bring in the police because it got so bad. Yeah, this kind of stuff does happen. So how did this church get so wrong? How did it get so wrong? One thing I love, I get a kick out, is kids' test answers that are technically right, but not really right. So, for, for example, let me set this up for you if you can't read this. This is Hope. There you see the name in the corner. Probably in fifth grade. I don't know when they do quadrilaterals. But Hope is asked to name the quadrilateral. And so this was her response for each of these. Yeah, Bob and Sam and <laughs> Tedison and Kate and Harry. Right? I love that. And that is just hope is she's going places very very creative thinker uh, how about this one i love this one too extra credit what is the strongest force on earth love but then that teacher no wrong like come on give them a little something right a little something they're trying how about this one uh find x <laughs> So this is Warren. <laughs> I mean, Warren's right. Warren is right. You should get extra credit. Warren, he's like, I'm going to be dead in 100 years. So here you go. Here's my gravestone. I love that. I love that. I love that. I love that overlap of technically right but totally wrong. 
And I, and I think it's important for us to understand that concept because in Corinth, they had created at church this just giant, ugly, moral mess. It's a disaster. But if you understand their reasoning, they are right. What they are basing their moral decisions on is correct. And this gets really tricky because this happens today in churches. There's lots of people who get themselves in moral trouble while they're quoting Bible verses. So let me, let me show you what's going on here. What they are, their moral reasoning flow chart seems to be, I have freedom in Christ. And that is true. You do have freedom in Christ. Paul wrote an entire letter to the church in Galatia about that, that you have freedom in Christ. But the problem is, is somewhere in that flowchart arrow between I have freedom in Christ and then the outcome, they had messed something up and they had decided my freedom in Christ means I can do whatever I want. And Paul's like, uh, no, we missed something here. We missed something really important here. They were technically right. They were technically right. So we're going to try to unwind this just a little bit. Their ethical approach had been a disaster. Um, last summer, there was an article about two girls, nine and four, who wanted to go swimming in the Pacific Ocean. They asked their parents, can we go swimming in the Pacific Ocean? Their parents said, no, because we live in Utah. So these two little girls, nine and four, set their alarm for 3 a.m., got the parents' keys, went down to the parents' truck, figured out how to start it, figured out how to drive it. The article said it took them about 90 minutes to figure out how to put it in gear, got out of the driveway, got down the road, got on the entry ramp to the highway, and hit a semi. They were okay. They were okay. They weren't going very fast because they were nine and four and didn't know how to use the gas pedal. I don't even know how they reached it. Maybe they had the four-year-old down on the floor using the pedals. I don't know. They weren't going very fast. The semi driver got out of his truck. He goes over to the car, and he's just baffled. He's trying to understand what's happening here. Can you imagine that 911 phone call? Now, the funny, funny thing, none of this is funny. Two things that were funny. One is they were headed east instead of west, but nobody told them because they didn't want to, like, I don't know, dash their dreams. The second funny thing is that the police put them in the police car, took them back home, and the parents were still asleep the whole time they had been asleep. Parents, doesn't that terrify you a little bit? Your kids could try to get in the car and drive to the Pacific Ocean, and you, you, would, you would never know. Hide your keys is what I'm saying. Nobody looks at that situation, reads that article, and thinks, you know what? The real problem here is that the semi-driver should have anticipated there would be a nine-year-old at the wheel who is drifting into oncoming traffic. Nobody would read that article and say, you know what the real problem is, is that the state highway department should in install bumpers along the road like you have in bowling. So if you have a nine-year-old driver, they're able to careen back and forth off the bumper and get where they're wanting to go. Nobody would conclude that. That would be a ridiculous conclusion. Also, a ridiculous conclusion would be clearly humans aren't meant to drive. That would be a bad conclusion based on that incident. A good conclusion based on that incident would be nine-year-olds are not mentally equipped to handle the types of choices and freedoms that come with driving a car. There's a responsibility and a maturity and a wisdom that a lot of adults don't have it. Certainly a lot of nine-year-olds don't have it. That's the conclusion you should draw. Because it is true, humans can drive vehicles. So, it is true, we have freedom in Christ. That is true. But it is also true, freedom without wisdom is dangerous. Freedom without wisdom is dangerous. Chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 14, verse 20. Paul writes, brothers and sisters, 
I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit. You're clearly not. I had to address you as people who are still worldly. You're mere infants. You're trying to take this important but dangerous spiritual truth and trying to drive it to the Pacific Ocean. You're mere infants. And in chapter 14, verse 20, brothers and sisters, stop. Stop thinking like children. Stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, be innocent. But in your thinking, you got to be adults because these are important spiritual realities that have big impacts on, on your life and on the people around you. And if you misuse them, you're going to cause tremendous amounts of damage. You are going to morally run head on into a semi if you try to employ important spiritual truth without spiritual maturity. So the problem isn't the truth. We do have freedom in Christ. The problem was they could not handle the truth. Literally, they could not handle it. You can be technically right and totally wrong. And a lot of Christians are technically right and totally wrong. And they're driving their cars right off a cliff thinking about a Bible verse that they have totally taken out of context. Technically right, totally wrong. In fact, when Jesus is having his interaction with Satan in the wilderness, Satan quotes Bible verses at Jesus to encourage Jesus to sin. Satan uses Bible verses. So don't think that just because you're thinking of a Bible verse or just because you have something memorized that you're doing the right thing. Real spiritual truth requires wisdom to to accurately handle. It's rare to hear someone say, when you're trying to talk to them or talk them out of a bad decision, it's rare to hear someone say, I don't care about what the Bible says. That's a rare thing. Most people twist up, mangle, take out of context a Bible verse, you know, add a little bit of selfishness and pride, and voila, there you go. I mean, I've heard lots of Christians say things like, well, God wants me to experience joy. That makes me experience joy. But that's a sin. And joy is not at the end of that road. So what, what do we do? How do we make good decisions? How do we have this wisdom? If you explore Paul's answer to each of those 10 problems, there's really three things. But the first thing he points out is, where is Jesus in this? Where is Jesus in this? I can't tell you how many times you see someone making a bad decision and the last factor in their bad decision is trying to retrofit Jesus into this bad decision, trying to justify this bad choice by using Jesus somehow. It's like putting together a puzzle and there's that last piece that clearly doesn't fit. That's what they're trying to do with Jesus, trying to fit him in, in a place that he doesn't fit. Where is Jesus truly in this? And you'll see that constantly throughout every every problem that you see in uh, 1 Corinthians. I could show you one verse, but it's really basically all the verses. So Jesus should be the first consideration. Where is Jesus in this? Secondly, the second thing Paul does is he asks the question, what does my decision mean for their spiritual life? This is really important because we're not wired to do this as modern Western Christians. We're not wired to think, oh, I only I have my conscience, but I also have other people's consciences to worry about. But it's clear through Paul's uh, navigation of these problems that we are subject to other people's ideas about what these things are and how they matter. 
Now, for example, he does this, and we're not going to get into this, but he talks about, hey, listen, an idol, when, when, when people go to this temple and they worship this idol, we all know that's just a block of stone that some skilled craftsman carved out. We know that. And you can eat whatever had been sacrificed to that. It shouldn't bother your conscience at all. But... If it does bother somebody else's conscience, if it causes them to stumble, then you should be willing to be a vegetarian. That's his whole point. You should be willing to give up meat forever. By the way, a little background. To get meat in most first century Roman cities, the meat was often involved in some sort of idol sacrifice somehow. He says in chapter 8, verse 9, he says, Be careful that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to someone else. If it does, don't do it. Chapter 10, verse 24, no one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Or in chapter 11, verse 29, I think this is a fascinating one because this is a verse that gets read often when you talk about the Lord's Supper. And the verse literally says, hey, you should discern the body uh, of Christ before you take. And so most people think that I sit in my own little chair and I just think about Jesus. But through the whole context of the whole book, he's talking about other people and the relationships you have with other people. I think he's saying you need to make sure you're thinking about your fellow brothers and sisters who are part of the body of Christ. You need to consider them. How are your interactions with them? How are your choices affecting them? You need to take in consideration the whole body. Because remember, the problem was, do you remember this? This is wild. The problem was people were, were drinking so much of the grape juice that they were getting drunk. Must be a lot of grape juice to get, to get drunk, right? And they were eating all the food, and there was none left for people at the end of the line. And he's like, you are not considering any, anybody else. If you're that hungry, maybe you should eat a little bit at home before you come to church. No, when you think about this sacrifice of Christ, when he was thinking about the world, you need to think about the body as well. All right, third thing, third thing. What does this choice proclaim about the character of God to the world? How does my choice reflect uh, on God? How does it give him glory? And in the middle of all that, the middle of all those decisions is where you will find wisdom. That's where you'll find wisdom. A lot of times we consider one element in this Venn diagram. We consider one thing. So we consider, all right, uh, where is Jesus in this? I have freedom in Christ, so I can do whatever I want. Well, the problem is he's saying, no, 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 <laughs> because it's not just you in Christ. It's you and everybody in Christ. So you can't just do that. Well, then what does this mean for their spiritual life? But the problem is, is I can't just consider their spiritual life. Because churches that do this end up being beholden to the most offendable people at church. And so it's... It's the squeaky wheel church of Christ and the people that get annoyed most often are the ones that are getting their way about everything. And that's not good either. We have to honor Christ with our choices. We have to honor other people with their choices. But also this third one, this is a trap a lot of modern churches fall into. What does this proclaim about God to the world? If this is the only consideration, then I'll probably need to edit some of what I say. So if we have a visitor show up, we don't offend them with something that is true. We need to gear our services around the outsiders so that we make sure that they feel comfortable. But that's not true either because what's going to make them feel comfortable isn't always things that are true. They need to hear things that make them feel uncomfortable. So it's not just one element. It's all of them working together and that's where you'll find wisdom. All right. Takeaways. Conclusion. Let's wrap up. Three observations. Number one, personal sin is a collective problem. You see this highlighted, particularly in chapter 5. Personal sin is a collective problem, meaning what you do in your house with the doors locked and the shades drawn affects the rest of us. 
It matters to the rest of us because what you do in your house with the doors locked and the shades drawn affects your character and your character affects the body. Personal sin is a collective problem. And this is just so clear throughout scripture, but it is such a foreign concept to us in today's age that sometimes we just cruise right past it because we cannot think that way. Your personal sin matters to everybody. First Corinthians chapter five, that guy's personal problem with his stepmom his problem means that it was bringing the entire church down and the church collectively needed to respond to that by saying, listen, we cannot be in fellowship with you because you are openly, blatantly living in a way that is contrary to the glory of God. Personal sin is a collective problem. Secondly, the, the big takeaway from 1 Corinthians is it's, it's really hard to go too wrong with faith, hope, and love. I didn't even talk about 1 Corinthians 13 because that's the one that's read at every single wedding that you have ever been to in the history of the world. Isn't it funny that 1 Corinthians 13 is right in the middle of this letter to this dumpster fire of a church? And that's the one we're like, oh, this is so romantic. I'll read this at my wedding. He's not talking about weddings. He's talking about church. You're a mess. You need to get back on track. Here's how you get back on track. Faith, hope, and love. And maybe some people are like, well, that works for marriages too because they can be a mess and that's how we get back on track with them. But this is really the, the heart and soul of 1 Corinthians, of what Paul, the positive of what Paul wants to say, that, hey, if you are focused on faith, then your life is going to be pretty good. If you're thinking about hope and what it means for eternity, then you're going to make better choices. If you're thinking about love and thinking about your fellow person, you're, you're not going to go too far wrong focused on those things. And then the third thing, the third, third takeaway, and this is my favorite of all, is that their church was wrecked, but it wasn't totaled. There was hope. And this is so valuable. This is my favorite thing in this whole thing. It's funny because when you read a book, um, you know, of course, you start at the beginning, unless you're my wife who likes to see who done it before she invests any time in the book. But most of us start at the beginning of the book. And when we read it, we're like, all right, how's this, you know, where's this going? And we kind of cruise past the first couple paragraphs of the chapter. But if you read 1 Corinthians backward and you end up at the beginning, this is, it's amazing. It blows my mind because Paul absolutely knew all the hard things he was going to have to say to this church. He knew what was coming. He knew he was going to be sarcastic to them. He knew he was going to call them babies and insult them spiritually. He knew he was going to tell them that their church services were so bad that they were worse off for having gone to church. He knew he, knew he was going to spend 16 chapters saying, what is wrong with you? He knew that. And despite all that, listen to how he starts this letter. Despite all the problems. Listen to how he starts. First Corinthians chapter one, verse four. I love this. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. And I bet you, I guarantee you, Paul was like, oh, Jesus, I'm so thankful for grace because this church of all churches desperately needs it. For in him, you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and knowledge. And this is important, remember, because they were arguing over who was the smartest, who was the most spiritually elite. And he was saying, you're all spiritually elite. You're all good. You've been enriched in every way. Verse six, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Verse 7, therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless. This church, blameless? This church is a mess. Blameless? Paul, are you sure that's the word you want to use? On the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 9, this is so true, this is so good. God is faithful 
who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Wow. Here's what I want us to take away. If this church can have hope, then you can too. If this church can be redeemed, then you can too. If this church can experience grace and fellowship with Christ, then you can too. If this church is loved by God, then so are you. This church that was a mess, that was a disaster, that if you visited this church on a Sunday morning, you'd be like, honey, we are not going back there. They are crazy. If this church can make it, then so can you. And I think that's the message of 1 Corinthians. It's not to get all into the scandalous details of, oh, how bad was this church? How good are we? It's to understand that we're all in the same boat before God and that we're all redeemed and that we're all saved. What a wonderful idea.